As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the On Farm podcast. It's Anna here with you again this week and you're really not going to hear much of my voice because this lady who you're about to hear from does not require much of an introduction and in fact um, if you haven't heard of her you should be ashamed of yourselves because um, she's incredibly famous in rural circles and I had the pleasure of speaking with her um, over a bowl of porridge um, for oh gosh over an hour and she was an absolute delight to talk to so I shall let her introduce herself and I hope you enjoy hearing all about her. My name is Amanda Owen, also known as the Yorkshire Shepherdess. I'm a mother of nine, farmer, shepherdess, sherpa and shoveler of the proverbial. Uh, I'm here talking today on the podcast about my new book, which is Celebrating the Seasons that has come out in paperback. Well, Amanda, it couldn't have been better planned, actually. We're, we're, I'm wanting to chat to you about the seasons and hearty, sustaining meals and as we chat just now, you are eating a bowl of what I can see steaming porridge, um, which surely is just one of the best things to set you up for the day on a Monday morning and give you the energy that you need to get all the jobs done. Absolutely. It's soul food, isn't it? So simple. And I mean, I think uh, I think we live off it. It has been known to sort of morph into breakfast, brunch, dinner, you name it, you name it. <laughs> It's absolutely freezing out there today, so this should this should keep me warm and keep me um, keep me energized for a little bit longer. It will, and much more exciting than the banana that I had for my breakfast. Um, not most, not all, but most of our listeners are based in Scotland, and and some people would say that that Scotland is a terrible place to observe the seasons because you can end up getting one season for all seasons in one day. Um, but actually, I think people in Scotland will really understand why you've written your book and what it's about, because um, when the weather's on our side, we can get the most stunning of seasons. You know, you can get the real beautiful autumnal leaves that we're experiencing at the moment. Tell me a little bit about the book. And, you know, you, this is your fifth book, I believe. Um, so where did you find the inspiration for this one? And why are the seasons so important to you? Well, it was a book of the moment because, of course, it was written during the pandemic. So it felt like, I mean, obviously, we're very privileged to live where we do when all that was going on everywhere else. We still had our space, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we could still enjoy the great outdoors. And for a lot of people, they couldn't. Um, I was putting a lot of a lot of sort of visuals out on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram pictures of the countryside, pictures of the changing of the seasons for, you know, a lot of people didn't have access to that. And I, we were fortunate that we did. 
So the idea came about that maybe we could put together a book, a beautiful book. We wanted it to be a book that sort of showcased what we do here on the farm and how life is. So it's sometimes pretty incongruous images of children in tutus and wellies outside in all weathers. Like you've mentioned before, for your listeners in Scotland, it does feel like where we live is a bit of a microclimate. We live in a place that is billed as one of the highest, remotest hill farms in England. So we get to experience all the seasons, as you say, probably not in a day, but in an hour. It can feel like (laughs) that. So, So I always say to people that whichever way you look here, there is the most glorious view. It's those iron grey skies. It's those contrasts. At the moment, this morning, I've just been out there and I've had my camera with me. Because it's just absolutely stunning. And it's, I suppose it's about that connection. It's about the connection connecting the countryside, the landscape, the view with what you put on your plate. Because as, as, um, as a mother of nine, food sort of figures quite highly in my <laughs> to-do list. And you are what you eat. And living here on a farm... You know, we try to exercise self-sufficiency in the manner that we can mm-hmm. going to where we live. But what with the food crisis and everything that we've got going on at, at this time, people will ask a lot. They'll say to me, how do you manage to feed such a big family? And I just say, well, this is how we do it. So that was what the book, that's where the book sort of was born, I suppose. It's pictures. It's about the countryside, it's about the animals, it's about the changing seasons, and it's about food. Yeah, but of course, it's very much not just a recipe book. It's it's full of fabulous recipes, which, as we've suggested with the porridge, are all about embracing the seasons, embracing um, what you need to eat and what you need to sustain yourself, but also embracing local produce. But you've got some lovely stories in there as well. I've been reading this morning about your your tale of the birth of Maple the foal and a hilarious story about your daughters um, when the vet came with the thermometer. Um, oh. Oh, don't. <laughs> well, I mean, look, put it this way. I mean, it's my fifth book now, and I suppose it's a tried and tested recipe the programs, the books, everything. It's always been about the same kind. It's always been about the same thing. It's been about the characters, the animals, the children, the countryside. I was a big fan of James Herriot when I was a child. Mm. And I found myself living in, in that sort of, I feel like I'm living that sort of life. So all it was, was literally putting it down on paper. And for whatever reason, I've been really fortunate that people have embraced it. And it's been a success, but I pinch myself every time when I think think about that journey. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just a very ordinary family who just lives at an extraordinary place. And we're just getting on with everything that we've got to do. But what with all the variables, children, animals, the things that you're not supposed to work with, they say. <laughs> and of course, the the weather. It means that every day there is something happening. There is something going on. At the moment, I'm on tenterhooks because I've got um, Kira, our sort of um, pet cow. She's over in the box just at the other side of the yard, and she's going to carve. So for the last 48 hours, I've had a constant running report from the children as to every time that cow has done anything. It's like, oh, it's making a funny noise. Can you come and have a look? So I keep going (laughs) and look. 
Oh, she stopped eating. So I go and have a look. Oh, she's drinking. I'm just like, she's still not doing anything. So, you know, it's 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 all that. I've just been across to the horses. We've got sheep in. I'm um sort of I'm juggling things, just as everybody is. So I think I think when it comes to the book, it resonates with people. Because although people might not be living this life here, I think it's um very relatable in that everybody is just kind of sort of firefighting, spinning plates, juggling things. That's what I write about. And as you say, you know, um, you mentioned in the book, everybody's got their chores to do and you generally don't have to nag them. They just get on with it. Um, Nothing has to be perfect, but they know what needs to be done. And as long as the animals are healthy and well cared for and well fed and the humans are healthy and well well cared for and well fed that's what, what kind of what you're out to achieve and I think that's that's nice that, that you know in the book there's there's some humorous stories that go along with those processes but ultimately that's what it's about isn't it it's, it's it about is. livestock and the health and some some hearty food to keep it, you going that really is I mean it's it is that simple I've never set myself up to be a domestic goddess I mean you're looking at me on the screen now and I'm kind of looking behind me. I think there's a discarded wetsuit because yesterday there was threats <laughs> of somebody going going swimming. There looks to be some sort of supermarket trolley basket thing that's full of wood in the corner over there. There's an, a sleeping itchy dog that looks like it's rolled in something. <laughs> but you know what? We're, we're happy and we're getting on with it. So I'm always very careful and aware that I'm, I, don't, I don't write anything that, is sort of like a how to live kind of manual or anything like that. It literally is just very gentle tales and a few simple recipes that basically you can make the kids do. And you also don't have to disappear off to some delicatessen and buy something really random that costs you about eight pounds that you'll only use once. You know what I mean? You're not going to find anything weird in there. If I wander into the dairy now, I can rustle up things and stuff from, from what I've just got handy I think it's jacket potatoes tonight so it's just simple it's just simple good quality fair and sort of doing things backwards way around looking at what you've actually got available to you in the dairy and larder and making something out of it that's what I try to teach the kids um because at the end of the day I don't particularly see myself as being a great parent we're just we're just both getting on with the business of rearing nine children and within that and everything else that we do it means that we're very busy people so that means we're very reliant on them playing a huge part in it so when you talk about chores it's not a game it's not it's not us sitting on the sofa and going do this do that I'm not breeding my own workforce it's actually being a part of something and feeling that that your input matters and I think Mm. for the kids I think that's a really good thing for them to bake something and cook something. Like I was away on Saturday, I had to go um, away to do some work and I was getting messages all day from Violet who literally was cooking bread and pizzas and lemon drizzle cakes. Cause I'm saying, come on, you need to be economic. If you put in the, if you turn in the oven on, you need to put lots of things in. It's kind of like it all feeds in. Yes, they're having lessons, but actually it's a part of the whole thing of making everything work. We've got a lot going on. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and as parents, we're role models to our children. And, you know, she will have picked that up just from observing you being busy, uh, being economical with what you've got, being economical with time, getting stuff done. Um, and I think I think that's great. You, you may not have envisaged this 20 years ago, but, you know, as well as a role model to your children, you are a role model to, to far more people. Uh, and, and one thing that's really close to my heart, I'm involved in a program up here in Scotland, which is called Be Your Best Self. And it's all about um, getting groups of women together. These women all work within the rural sector. So they might be farmers themselves. They might be married to farmers. They might work for a veterinary practice. They all work in some sort of rural business. And we're bringing them together and um, they're doing a short online course all about you know trying to, to enable them to build up self-confidence, build networks, identify what their strengths are, allow them to use their strengths. Because I think often women in agriculture can feel as though perhaps their opinions are, are you know, second down from the opinions of, of the men working in the sector. And that's a generalisation, but you know what I mean. Um, and I think you, you in your position have become a role model, um, but you must suffer to a degree from, I don't know, imposter syndrome or lack of confidence in your own skills. What advice do you think you can offer to, to other women working in agriculture to just um, be themselves and, and enable themselves to be heard? It is, I won't make any bones about it, Anna, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to sort of stick your head up mm. above the parapet. I never, ever intended to stand on any kind of soapbox. I rem- I always remember thinking to myself, there's plenty of other people who want to get political, who want to get shouty. And I'm not that person. So to be propelled sort of into the limelight was something that I never expected. And like everybody, I have moments where you can feel incredibly fragile. But I think working where we do and working out in the elements and all the rest of it, yeah, it makes it so that you're good at withstanding a storm, but actually, I'm just going to say it's it's incre- it's an in- it's an incredibly difficult difficult thing to do. And I'm not above and beyond feeling that stress and pressure on me. But I feel that if you can be true to yourself and who you are, it's good to question yourself. It's good to question your motives. It's good to look at yourself. It's good to go away from the farm and then come back to it and look at it. Again, you see things in different eyes. It's good to look from other people's perspective. But as a person, I don't want to change who I really am. I'm strong. I'm tough. I work outside in all weathers. I've got a perpetual drip on the end of my nose. (laughs) I I am strong, but staying mentally strong is difficult. You need to reach out and talk to people. You can't close in on yourself. It's a grave danger, when, particularly yeah. when you're living, farming, living rurally, that you be, can become so wrapped up sort of in your own little cocoon that you don't, that you don't speak to people and you don't, you don't reach out. So you kind of have to sort of, you have to keep those bonds going. But again, it's, it's, I don't know, keeping that confidence going. You get, you get, 
you get sort of, you get criticism whatever you do in life. And I think being aware of that, that you can't always keep everybody happy all of the time. Mm-hmm. That That's a tough one to get around because I was always a person who, who was a people pleaser. I wanted to be, make people smile. I wanted to, to be a good example. But you know what? Life throws you some funny old curveballs. And I find myself now with my feet in two very different worlds. But this, being here on the farm, is where it all started, and that's what I'm very mindful of. People can people can throw comments about, people can write stuff, people can go on social media, people can say things. But the people that I meet on a daily basis for the six months that we invite visitors onto the farm, anyone who knows me, anyone who meets me, anyone who talks to me, knows that that, that I'm all right. And as long as, as they know I'm all right, and my kids know I'm all right, and I feel that I'm putting out a good example to them, then that's that's all good. I think you've got to say you've got to you've got to keep plowing on, but don't be afraid to reach out to other people for help. And that's that's the thing, you know, the the farming community, the rural community, it needs to sort of pull together for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's really coming across in, in this work that we've been doing, that it's not just about skills, it's about the network that you develop and the support that people can get from each other and from sharing their worries and sharing their concerns and knowing that there's somebody on the end of a phone or on the end of a text message who kind of understands what they're going through and can help support them. And I think, yes, you know, your, your the, the public side of your life for some people perhaps appears not untouchable, but, you know, a different world from them. But actually um, to, uh, to understand that, you know, you, you're, some of these same thoughts have, go, have been going through your mind as well, I think is really reassuring. It is. You know, no, nobody is immune from, you know, from, from what's going on. And, I mean, I used to think being here on my hill end, I thought I was a million miles away, a million miles mm. away from everybody. So the thing that is absolutely brilliant is that although I'm speaking to you here now, when I go back out that door, it all stops. Mm-hmm. It all stops. I'm back to myself. I'm in that world. I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm navigating a river to go across to where the horses are. I'm sorting out the cows or I'm in the sheep pens. And I can't recommend that enough to people. Not to isolate themselves entirely, but to know when to sort of give your give your head a little give your head a little rest. So kind of there is that split as well. Connection yeah. is good, but also disconnection is sometimes good. Oh, definitely. And, and I think for me, you know, I often it's a shame that that podcasting is just audio because you know just even you know seeing you sitting there in, in your living room. You can hear the quad bikes in the background. You're eating your porridge, and again, that that highlights to me and and hopefully everybody listening how there is that, that there's two sides to everybody's life, and sometimes we have to know where to park one or other of them at any given point, and that's what we need for for our sanity. Um, you're you're very yeah. you're very right. I mean, that's what I've always tried to portray. It's it hasn't always been you know um, the sunlit uplands. It hasn't always been sun shining sort of fair weather rose tinted glasses 
it's always been about the other side as well. But it's like getting that right balance. Nobody wants to become so supposedly the money farmer. <laughs> nobody wants to be him. But also nobody wants to become the sort of um, fake kind of countryfily not real. If you can get both audiences on board, in other words, people who know farmers, people from the rural sector, if they can watch your program, if they can read your books, as well as those that don't know and haven't got a clue, then you're doing something right. You know, anything that sort of teaches people but they don't realise they're being taught anything has got to be good. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's going to tune into a programme that supposedly is going to teach you about what it's like to live in the countryside or on a hill farm. That sounds so boring. But what they can do is tune into a programme or pick up a book that sort of details the ups and downs, the highs and the lows of, of uh, a real life. Exactly. And I think those of us who work, live and work within farming... Um, realize how important it is for small businesses who might have 1500 followers on Instagram, you know, might be a farm shop, whoever you are, if you're in the rural sector, it's so important to be able to tell the real story about what life's like so that, as you say, you're not lecturing or educating, you're just giving non-farming people information and and interest so that they can even just learn a little bit more about what it is to be a farmer and what it is to produce food. Absolutely. I mean, even if I look here at this farm, if you go back 100 years, this farm is its the worst of the worst. I mean, nothing's changed, but it's the worst farm. You know, who wants to come here? It's a place where um, a young person would come to farm to sort of earn earn the respect of people that you could farm somewhere. You know, it's it's got long winters, short summers. It's really rough. It's acidic, heavy soil. It's all grazing. It's sheep in the main part and a few cattle. It's a, it's a hard place to sort of live and work. Then you go through the phase after the war when everybody's hungry and a lot of government grants put in to drain the moors to make them more productive because people are hungry. You can't blame them for that. They were, it's like, come on, we need, come on, farmers, we need to get on. We need to feed people. So the moors are drained. Obviously, in hindsight, that was a big mistake because that led to overgrazing. And, um, of course, those peat moorlands are absolutely wonderful carbon sinks. So environmentally, it was not the right thing to do. So now we're planting the gullies and we're um, sort of blocking up the drainage ditches to try and make it work to hold the carbon. And we, because because we were left, left away back in time, we couldn't put the fertilizer on, so we've still got our original hay meadows. In a way, you go through stages. Ravensea it was a very unfashionable farm. Nobody wanted to be here. It was hard. Then it was left behind because it couldn't it couldn't farm as and be as commercially viable mm-hmm. as people wanted it. Then wool trade disappeared and all the rest of it. And now all of a sudden we're coming to a place where people are actually saying, hang on a minute, we want these hay meadows, we want the biodiversity, yes, we want the insects, we want the birds, we want carbon capture, all the rest of it. So all of a sudden, this farm that was non-desirable has actually become very desirable. But then we get into the whole confusion as to what are you farming it for? Are you farming it for food mm. to put on the plate? Are you farming it for the environment? And I think that at the end of the day, if you can do a little bit of everything and have the right natural balance, we can do the hay meadows, 
We can do the wild birds. We can do the biodiversity. We don't use any fertilizers, no herbicides, no pesticides, and put food on the plate mm. and do the heritage and do the dry stone walls. We can do all that. But that just means that we're incredibly busy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Incredibly busy. Exactly. Which comes back again to that word balance, which you've talked about in terms mm. of, you know, the balance between your kind of social media life and, and, and your farm life. And actually, if you don't mind, I'd love to have a little chat about the next generation and our kids. You know, I I follow you on social media. Uh, Raven, your eldest daughter's got a first, I understand, in her degree, which is amazing. Um, I myself, I've got two daughters, so very much aware of what we've talked about already, about women in agriculture and, you know, kind of any sort of gender stereotypes. What what do you think we can do to bring our daughters up so that they're as little impacted as possible by the, the you know the what goes on within the gender and the gender stereotyping that prevails in agriculture? How can they, can we give them the right balance in their lives? I think as a woman working in agriculture, I've kind of I've always just got on and been myself. I've had nine kids. I've spent the last. 20 years, rearing kids, running about the fields, heading into the auction mart, doing everything that I've ever had to do. Yeah, sometimes you will experience a little bit of snarkiness. But I've always kind of been someone who can give as good as I can. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think I've raised a strong family unit who are equally able to progress in whatever they choose to do in life because of their upbringing Mm -hmm. not despite it because of it because it gives you a whole different you have to have a can-do attitude being at a place like like here I always say it rubs off on you you become more independent maybe it gives you a bit more of a wild spirit it certainly may I feel like it does it does make you stronger and it does make you more true to yourself. I mean, the kids here, they've always worn what they wanted. They've always done what they want. There's been no limitation. Everybody has always mucked in on an equal basis. And that includes myself and Clive as well. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you have to start right at the, the very beginning of treating everybody absolutely equal. Yes, yes. Absolutely equal. I've got nine kids and they're not like peas in a pod. They're all very different characters and they've all got the different skill sets. Raven's very academic. She's got her first in biomedicine, Mm. so she's doing her master's now in research oncology. So that's what she's doing. Ruben is, I guarantee you, just as smart, just as bright, just as astute as Raven, but he does not give a hoot about schoolwork, academia. He was he was not a scholar. I wasn't a bad kid. But mm. my point is, all he wanted to do was leave school and get to work. He wants to work land, wants to work with machines. That's where his skill is. And the same with Miles. And I will back them 100% to the hilt. Because if there's one thing that I do know, it's that the qualification that you get on paper Of course, it's not worthless. It's a wonderful thing if you are that way inclined. But you can be successful. You can do well in the world without going to college, without going to university. Mm -hmm. Children who 
are not academic, are not sort of into that, should certainly be given given more opportunity. I I was the person I was the kid who stared out the window. I was the daydreamer. I wasn't the bad kid. I wasn't the good kid. I was the kid in between who gets overlooked. I just sort mm. of stared out the window and daydreamed. That was me. I got an E in English at GCSE level. That's how bad I was. And, and now you've written five books. Yeah. So that <laughs> but is I think, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the that's the that is the proof of the pudding. So yeah, that is what absolutely. I would say. And mm. it's come across in everything you've said, you know, it, it regardless of gender. You've got to be yourself and be mm. true to yourself. And also mm. a little bit of don't be afraid to stick up for yourself and don't be afraid to say what you think. Kind of throw all that together. And actually that is a fantastic recipe to overcome any kind of issues. Yeah, at, I, 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 truly, I truly believe that. I truly, yeah. I truly, I truly believe that. I believe, in fact, no, I know that I have brought up good kids, boys and girls, and I will not in any way shape sort of what their sort of final end game is. They'll be what they want to be, but they have to mm-hmm. kind of do it for themselves. All I can do is, I suppose, put the foundations in. And I feel that being having a rural childhood and being on a farm gives you just that because it gives you that sense of practicality. It gives you that common sense. It gives you so much that unfortunately is now eluded from the younger generation i get cribbed for it oh i can't believe i can't believe you've let the kids climb up that Mm. i can't believe you've let the kids do this i can't believe you've let the kids do that but these are the very same people who then go kids nowadays they can't do anything (laughs) yes yeah. So it, you know you're you're treading a fine line all the time, mm. so. but ultimately you've equipped your kids with yes skills, but mm. ultimately the self belief that they can do whatever they want to do, and yeah. at the risk of sounding really cheesy, you know the quote at the beginning of your book is there is no mountain you cannot climb, and and I think really? I suspect that all of your kids have that belief in themselves that they can do whatever they want to do they at can. a fast they pace, can. at a slow pace. Yeah. Well, however they want to do it, they but mm-hmm. they can do it. They can do it. And that's and that is at the end of the day the only thing that I sort of wanted anybody who was reading the books or watching the programs or whatever to, to sort of take take away from it. I get so many letters from children and so many children coming to talk to me and they say, I think I want to be a farmer. I'd love to I'd love to be able to farm, I'd love to be able to work the land, I'd love to be able to have a rural occupation, forestry, gamekeeping. I'm like, mm. yeah. And I say, no matter what is going on, sort of politically, no matter what people's mindset is, people always need food on a plate. Full stop. End of. So therefore, yes, we need young blood, we need new ideas, we need new sort of youngsters coming in all the time but the job remains the same Andy always Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely will yeah so before I let you get back to um your more important work outside um (laughs) just coming back to the book again you know we're speaking it's October um as you've mentioned it's getting cold outside um What, what recipe would you pick from the book that can give us energy can just make us feel, especially on a Monday morning, as though oh, we've, we've got fire in our bellies and oh. we can face the week. What's your oh, go-to there's recipe? There. There's loads in there. 
I did the tagine last night because it's so easy. I can, I, it, the smell of a tagine, people will assume, you know, oh, great British fare, it's meat and two veg, yawn, yawn, yawn. There's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> but, you know, it can, there's only a limit as to how much of that you can do. I like the tagine because basically it's a stew that sounds better. It's like a dorbay <laughs> or a, you know, yes. if anyone goes stew, I don't think there's anyone goes, oh, yes, stew. We don't do that. But anything <laughs> that you can tickle a load of spices in. Me and Raven were in the dairy. It's like, what have we got in there? We've got cranberries. We've got apricots. We had some chicken. We had some chickpeas. We had some brown rice. We had some um, spices. We had cumin. We had uh, all garlic, onions. Just And I chucked it all in a pan. Just fried it up in some butter. Then covered it with some vegetable stock. Shoved it in the in the range, forgot about it. Came back. Violet had made some like flatbreads, really easy flour and water, wow. and yeah. they all ate that. So all it is is just a sort of, I don't know, a spiced up, tastier version of 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 the basics. And again, yeah. everything's always fusion with us because we never quite have the right ingredients. No. So again, yeah, fusion, that's a great word for make it up as you go along, isn't it? I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Everything <laughs> yeah. has been rebranded, fusion, and deconstructed yes. is when you didn't quite finish it. Same thing. Yes. Okay. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you, you say in the book that, you know, perhaps, you know, getting a lamb box might not be within everybody's budget, but actually mm. a 25 kilo sack of potatoes is is peanuts to buy and it can feed families for weeks, yeah. months even. Yeah. Likewise, you know, you're eating porridge, really not an expensive thing to be cooking. No. So that's what, why I like the book, because it's, as you say, it's nothing that you've got to trek to the nearest no. deli to find. No. It's all kind of hearty stuff, um, easy to prepare, get it in a slow cooker or something, go yeah. off and do what you need to do and just way, kind of keep it simple. There are ways and means of everything. Everything, everything in the book can almost be sort of, I don't know, blinged up, pimped up. Yeah, mm. you can use wild rice, you can use black rice, you can use, you can, you can sort of, everything can be made sort of fancier if you want it, but everything can also be cheapened. If you don't have any meat, that's fine. Use your vegetables. You've always, you know, there's, there's always something. If I go in the fridge now, there's been an absolute glut of cauliflowers. There's been cauliflowers forever. Apparently, it's been a really good season for growing cauliflowers. Oh. So I said, a cauliflower farmer. So <laughs> I've been buying cauliflowers. So, you know, where you're like, oh, well, what can you do with the cauliflower? Well, cauliflower cheese, that's great. But, you know, there's some fantastic other things. What about, like, your sagaloo? Everyone's favorite mm. when you go to the takeaway it doesn't always have to be sort of like standard sort of British fare. You can get your standard British fare and then make it into something else. You know, it's just, it's again, it's that addition of things. See what's cheap, see what's cheerful, see what I can use. So mm-hmm. last night I had Colin and Nan, one, two, three, four, and then I had all the nine. I had 16, 16 people for tea. It's not like some sort of, sort of, um, pull out the table, get out a candelabra and put a tablecloth no. on. Literally, everyone gets a plate. No one even enough room for everyone to sit down. So everyone was scurrying off with plates and God knows what. It's like first one to the table gets the pick, you know? Yeah. But the fact of the matter is you can feed everybody and you can feed them well just by using your brain. I mean, couscous, a bag of couscous, you're only looking at just over a pound. And if you took some vegetable stock in I actually had a really crinkly pomegranate in the fridge god knows where that came from (laughs) but 
But again, it's like, what can we put in? And Raven is a master at that because she's learned off me. It's it's kind of just doing things backwards way around, not opening up a recipe book and going out and buying what's in it. It's looking in your dairy and thinking, what can I get out of that? Yeah. And, and I think it's, you know, as I say, most of our listeners are rural people. You know, if you've got a problem outside, you can improvise with a bit of baler twine or a bucket hey, or whatever yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> And, and same in the kitchen. You know, we don't have to be afraid of the kitchen. If you don't have what you need, you can improvise yeah. with something else. And I suppose that it's just about kind of, you know, as we said already, make it up as you go along. Yeah, but you have but to be you have a bit to creative. You, you have to be creative, but you have to be, you have to allow allow the children particularly to make mistakes as they go along. Violet, she's she's into her baking big time at the moment. And she was like, I, I was telling her about some cakes. She was like, oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make some cakes. And I think she was making, it was some sort of carrot cake, but she didn't quite have enough carrots. It's it's a long story, but she put some of the bits and pieces in and she said, oh, I'm going to cook them. I'm going to cook them um, in the Rayburn. And you see, for most kids, how hot is a Rayburn? Nobody ever really knows, do they? It's just <laughs> no. got this very kind of, just kind of wave your hand in it. And it's like, mm, I don't yeah. If you get your idea, your idea of what you saute to start off with to make your base, and then what you can add, and how long certain things take to cook, you know, you don't want to be putting in any sort of split peas or lentils five minutes before you're serving. It's all about timings. It's all about it's all about getting a feel for it. And once you've got a feel for it, then the world's your oyster. You can make things. You can do things. But yeah. you have to you have to sort of be hands off. That's how I am with the kids. I'm like, right, okay. I'm going to leave you, you cook, you bake. There'll be a few mistakes along the way, but that's the best way to learn. Mm. And making the best of what you've got is is a life skill that goes way beyond the kitchen, doesn't it? So it's, it's something that I think, you know, your kids will be able to use those techniques in, in a whole bunch of different mm. dates and times and to get themselves well, exactly. out of a pickle. Mm. Well, they're doers. And I feel like that is particularly what, folk are, are looking for what people what people need i've always said to Ruben with his machinery skills and his engineering i've said if you can if you can mend things if you can make things work if you can sort of sort out problems if you can if you're a doer i suppose codge is the word if you can make things yeah. actually work and th- make things happen there'll always be a job for you because there are plenty of places where when a machine isn't working that y- you can't sort of go through, ring up, you know, some factory unit somewhere abroad and do some kind of weird reset. You need someone to go in there and mend it and make it work. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're sadly lacking in people with those practical skills. I think that was Ruben Mm -hmm. who just whizzed past that now. There's always something going on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like he's beating his heart. Oh, brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Hi, Ruben. Like wants to. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, well, Amanda. I'm I'm gonna um, let mm. you go because um, you, you're so busy and you've got plenty of things to do. But no, I, I love following you on Instagram, and I think ultimately I've got a passion for storytelling, and I think that ultimately when it comes to representing the rural sector, that's what you do best is is storytelling. And those stories have got such a value, not just for those of us in agriculture who can kind of empathise with with the highs and the lows, but also people perhaps more importantly out with agriculture who could develop an understanding Mm. of what it's like, what it's like to, to, to farm and and to grow food. So, um, 
the the book is called Celebrating the Seasons. We'll put a link to it in the show notes oh, so um, people can find out a bit more information. But thank you very much for, for spending the time to, to chat with me today. I really thank appreciate you. it. So enormous thanks there to Amanda Owen for speaking to me. She is an incredibly busy lady, uh, as well as, uh, she might not say this, but uh, I say, uh, a celebrity. Um, So we were honoured that she was able to give up some of her time um, to speak to us. Um, So, yeah, very, very grateful. Now, as well as Amanda, this episode would not be possible without the ongoing support of our sponsor, our main sponsors, Gillespie McAndrew, the Scottish legal firm. We are enormously grateful to them, but also to other recent sponsors of the On Farm podcast, such as Safetra and Harrison and Hedrington. Now, if you or your business would like to come on board to support On Farm, um, the top performing rural podcast in Scotland, then please do get in touch with us because we've got some great and not too expensive packages whereby you can raise awareness of your business through the podcast and uh, get your name out there. So you'd also be helping... Uh, to keep us going. We rely on sponsorship to get out there and create these episodes and tell positive stories from across Scotland and beyond. So all support is gratefully received. Um, So yeah, hope you enjoyed listening to Amanda and uh, we look forward to being back next week.